from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm excited about today's show with Eileen Wiseman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust, to talk about how she rose into this uniquely impactful role, the surprising things she's learned about leadership and organizations, and the professional arena of philanthropy. Our phones are open. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 Seven eight six six, And if you'd like to join the conversation or you have questions for Eileen, please give us a call. We'd really love to have you join in. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. You can also write to us, which people have been doing with increasing frequency. Um, all you have to do is send an email to businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and Patty will make sure I get it. Um, and so whether you want to call in real time so we can answer you on the air, write to Patty right now, or even during the week, whether we're in replay or you're just thinking about your question, no, you can always write in. And as a matter of fact, I got a really um, interesting letter this week from a woman named Ellen who wrote, I am a 39-year-old mother of two, age two and four, um, and have worked full-time in a professional career and almost always in a leadership position since my early 20s. I only took three months off after having both children. But as my kids transition from daycare and preschool to entering regular grade school, I'm struggling with working full-time and still handling school drop-off, pickup, routine pediatrician appointments, swim lessons, etc., and still being physically present at work. I've toyed with the idea of working part-time in order to get both done, but I feel like I'd be, quote, giving up the fight for being a female professional with a career I've worked hard to build. I worry about dropping out of the workforce and how that affects society, myself, and how my daughter views women in the workforce. I fought to work at home two days a week. However, my boss and coworkers subtly looked down on me for that decision. When looking for other jobs, it's much more the exception rather than the norm to find a flexible one any advice. So Ellen, first of all, thank you so much for listening. And really, I deeply appreciate the time that you took to write. I think your situation is one that unfortunately, almost all of us experience at some point, although not all of us articulate it as well as you did. So know that your experience is not only a common one, but it's something I really struggled with personally. So I'm going to give you some advice, invite our listeners to join in if they have additional thoughts to share. And I'm excited to see what Eileen has to say once we bring her on the show. So that data day struggle that you describe is real and it's ongoing. It doesn't go away. I hate to tell you that, but that's part of parenting in life. The question is how to make it manageable. So you've got to boil it down. Coping with it is finding a combination of what's truly essential that you're not going to let go of, what you can approach differently, and what needs to just come off of the to-do list entirely for now. One of the things my mother said is um, you can have it all, just not all at the same time. And so are there things that you're expecting of yourself or trying to get done that you really should just put to the side for now? Um, And then you got to always reevaluate those systems. Each time your kids change developmentally, each time school changes, activities change, work changes, um, stuff happens with family, you, you need to evaluate those things. While there's no perfect solution, there are two great resources that I'd recommend, um, particularly Laura Vanderkam's I Know How She Does It, which is a really great book about how you use your time, and Tiffany Dufu's Drop the Ball, which is a recent great book about how we think about the roles in our households and who's doing what. The other thing that's important to note here is that your decision to work full-time, part-time or not at all, I so appreciate that you're thinking about the sisterhood. But I got to tell you, I believe that it is a deeply personal choice. You've got to make that choice based on what works for you and your family first and foremost. It doesn't make you less of a feminist, um, although it will certainly have an impact on your short and long-term income and your career trajectory, unfortunately. But you've got to weigh this out. This is a decision you make for you and your family. Um, On the upside, it's not an irreversible decision, especially if you can arrange to take a leave of absence instead of quitting. It's a way to buy yourself some time and protect your job without being out of work completely. And that sometimes can give you the time that you need to recalibrate how life is working or where you are or line up your next role. Um, And while you're absolutely right, we are all role models for our kids. We, We are the models that they 
um, internalize consciously, subconsciously. Um, remember that her views are most likely going to be shaped by your career as a whole. So don't put too much pressure on any given moment in that regard. Um, don't presume that what feels like capitulation at this stage to you is going to be seen that way by her. I know when I look back at my own mom, I see moments and I remember moments, but I also see the big picture and where she landed and how all those choices added up. And I'm really hoping my daughter sees mine the same way. Um, so that brings us to the last question of the question of part-time work or flex time. This is obviously a place that we believe deeply employers should be creating systems and a culture to support those alternate ways of retaining you and others facing similar challenges. But if that culture is not yet in place and flex time or part time work is not the right answer for you or your family, then this is where I encourage you to channel your inner ambassador and activist. Know that you're paving a new path and in doing so, be conscious of how you can minimize the resentment of the people around you. Look for opportunities to increase acceptance. So you can be discreet about when you're working off-site. Be fully professional when you do so. So it doesn't become a perceived factor in the quality of your work. If you're on the phone, make sure it's absolutely quiet. If you're Skyping in or FaceTiming in or you have a video conference, um, put on your makeup. Be dressed in business clothes. Have a neutral setting behind you. Don't reinforce that you are not in the work environment that they are. Instead, let everybody focus on the work that you're doing. Um, and like so many women have told us time and time again, the people who paved the way undoubtedly worked harder than everybody else and bent over backwards to be beyond reproach. I feel like I sort of resent it as a reality because it puts a burden on us that men don't internalize. But I'd say if you're worried that you're managing perceptions, then you got to try your best to be impeccable. Make sure everything's on time. Make sure it's done to the best of your ability. And then the last thing is to express gratitude to the decision makers who actually granted you this opportunity by honoring what matters to them. Check in with them regularly to address concerns as they arise. And then where possible, find opportunities to advocate for others, letting the organization see you as an example of why and how this can work. So I hope that's helpful. And when all else fails, remember that especially when our kids are little, the days are long, the years are short. We can't get more of them so we can get more out of them. That's the trick. But you got to do it without really worrying about the judgment of others. Do what works for you. Ellen, thanks so much for writing, and I really hope that was helpful. If you have a question, any of our listeners for us at Women at Work, you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and certainly in real time by calling us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So now, with all of that out there, I get the great pleasure of welcoming Eileen Heisman to the studio here at Wharton. She's the president and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. Um, she's an internationally recognized expert on charitable and planned giving. Um, and she's currently teaches all over the place, including a bunch of places here at Penn. So she's a member of the faculty and the governance committee for the nonprofit leadership program at uh, Penn School of Social Policy and Practice. She's a regular lecturer for the nonprofit board leadership program here at Wharton. Um, but in her primary job leading the National Philanthropic Trust, um, it's a dedicated a charity dedicated to providing uh, philanthropic expertise to donors, foundations, financial institutions, enabling them to realize their philanthropic aspirations. It's not an old organization. It was founded in 1996. But in that short period of time, compared to other foundations, it's raised an astonishing $7.6 billion in charitable contributions, currently manages $4.2 billion in charitable assets. It's made more than 160,000 160, grants, totaling $3.9 billion to charities all over the world. Aside from this, she's an alumna as a member of our third Wharton Fellows class and serves on the advisory board um, of NYU's George H. Hyman Jr. Center for Philanthropy and Fundraising and is the chair of the board at College Trust. So, And I've omitted long lists of things this woman has accomplished. Stop. Stop. So, Eileen, <laughs> welcome to Women at Work. We're so thrilled to have you here. It's great to be here. And I really identified with Ellen's comments about being a working mother. I was a working mother my entire life. And um, I didn't really have the choice not to do it. So, you know, I didn't, I had to do it to support, to contribute to the family. So I, I, I remember things, I was just wanted to add a couple things, actually, that your ideas. One is, is to get as much help as you can. I mean, 
I, I knew every high school and college kid who lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's I knew true. Every They're a older huge woman. resource. I knew every mother who had a job that ended earlier than mine. I knew everything. And I spent every hour almost of my vacation time in one-hour chunks going to sporting events and, and going <laughs> to school for meetings and things. I mean, I chunked out, and I said, can I spend my vacation time an hour at a time? Yes. Oh, so you that, really? So you're not just I saying did. that's how the time got spent. No. That was like something you organized I organized, and, and I allow everybody at NPT to do that. But so you could take your vacation time an hour at a time. And then um, I, I, the other thing I did, and this was the most radical, and I modeled it after somebody else, so I actually am still friends with I saw that she was she was really bright, really resourceful person, and she was working a job that was a little bit underneath her skill set, I thought, and, but she was working close to home. And I said to her, what, do, what are you doing? And she said she drew a circle around her house, a circumference, and she said, I'm going to only look for jobs when my kids are a certain age inside that. And if it means I have to be a step or a notch down of what I would ordinarily do, that's fine for this period of time. So she sacrificed a little bit. Actually, in the long run, I'm not sure she sacrificed anything. And it was before cell phones. And so when you were, I used to work and take the train. And if your train was late or it would stop, I would be on the train white knuckled. And I hated living with that kind of stress. So I did the exact same thing. I thought, boy, that's really smart. So I drew a circle around from my house and I only looked for jobs there. And boy, I was lucky when they announced that National Philanthropic Trust was being launched and ended up being pretty close (laughs) to my house. Or else I probably wouldn't have done it. I was headhunted for jobs all over the place and I just couldn't do. So, So I think you do make sacrifices, but I think there's a quality of life. And I actually don't think I sacrificed very much and I wouldn't have changed it. But Boy, every high school kid. I mean, I knew. I used to. I was driving down the street in my neighborhood, and I live in a really safe little neighborhood. And I saw sort of clean cut looking kids, mostly girls. Right. And they looked like they were appropriate babysitters, or they. And I would stop the car if I didn't know them. That's and hysterical. Say, I live two blocks from here. Do you live? Do you live nearby? I'm always looking for babysitters. <laughs> so I had this amazing list, and and if they, I tried them once, they didn't work out. I never called them back, but. I knew, every, and so I would just line people up. I was always planning. I, I have to tell you, in a similar way, because finding the babysitters was life changing. There were times the only time I could swim was at five o'clock in the morning. I actually found a high school student who's happy to get up at five o'clock, come to my house, and go to sleep on the couch. So a grown up was there while my daughter slept. But I was in the elevator at Whole Foods one day, and these. Um, adorable young women are there and they're talking about nobody seems to need a nanny. And I just stopped and I was like, oh, that is so not true. I need one. I know lots of people who need one. Come talk to me. And it wound up, I was working at the University of the Arts. They were all upperclassmen at the school. And um, I wound up with a sequence of the most fabulous babysitters. But it was like you said, you had to like find them wherever you could. And I could sort of intuit those that I thought would do well and who I would get along with and I could trust. I mean, it, and I, those phone numbers, I mean, I had them by heart. I, it was before you could just hit the cell phone. And you know what? I look back and my kids learned a lot from these young women. Oh, they were amazing. They, yeah, they were. My, I, my daughter's an athlete. They were athletes. I mean, they role modeled in different ways than I could. They did different activities. I came home once. There was all this art projects. I said, what's this? And they And one of the young women went to art school. And she, on these really ridiculous small big pens, she she did this wrappings with like different materials. And I thought I would never do that with a kid. So I, I love this because I, I just want to break this down a little bit so that we don't lose, like you said, so many fabulous things so quickly that, um, A, you experience this too. The, yeah. the struggle is constant painful. It's and painful. it's real and it's painful. Um, what's really encouraging to hear, and I hope Ellen took it in, is that in making, whether it was the friend of yours, that message that you can take roles that keep you in the workforce, yes. keep you growing, keep an income coming in. Um, and it may not look like it's positive upward movement on a career track, but we also know that in the long run, it probably won't matter. And that in the long run, what studies show us is that there's a different kind of zigging and zagging that we all do through careers. So worried about that momentum if you stay at work, you're doing good work, and you can manage your life, that's an achievement on its own. Absolutely. And you know what? I thought, it would, for me, it was better to be in the workforce and feeling sane. To me, working was part of my mental health approach, right? I mean, I really <laughs> right. needed to get out of the house. And, and I didn't want to be home all the time. So if I could work 10 minutes from the house and I didn't spend that hour in the morning back and forth, 
you know, that was a lot of time. Time's money. And so I had the value of being with my kids and going to, you know, pour tea or whatever you do, and juice, you know, in, in lunchtime. But <laughs> right. I did. I showed up in my business suit when other moms were in their sweatpants, right? And I, I knew there was a whole bunch of moms that, like, went to work out after they dropped their kids off to school. Like, I didn't really know what they did. But um, I didn't do that. And I look back, and I, it, was a, it, was a, it was an okay solution. I mean, it was the way I could have most everything that I want. It wasn't perfect, but it was better. You made it work. And also, I have to say, we've talked about a lot of flex time options here, but this idea that you could take your vacation an hour at a time, I think, is a new one for us. So I want to put it up there on the Women at Work Hall of Fame to say, if you really are bound to strict time requirements at work, where your time is checked, think about you know, instead of a day, that's eight one-hour events. And oh, my God. That's huge. And you know what? I say to people when they take jobs with us, you know, you can take your you, you can take your time off in, in one-hour chunks, uh, half-hour chunks if you want, because I, that's what I needed as a working mother. And it really actually worked. I mean, if the soccer <laughs> game was farther away, I'd left an hour and a half earlier rather than an hour. And everybody knew. And I took much less organized vacation time. Like, you know, we went to the shore that week between – camp and school. Oh my God, I hated that, that week. <laughs> There's no infrastructure support. By the way, I am talking with the amazing Eileen Heisman, who is the president and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. If you do want to join in the conversation here on Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or do what Ellen did and write to us. I love getting those letters. And you can do it at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So we can see if only only from your babysitting recruitment that you were in hiring in innovative ways then. Now that you're at the helm of the National Philanthropic Trust, um, how many people are working with you there? So we have uh, almost 50 people, and we have now somebody in New York. We have somebody in Chicago, in California. We just hired somebody in the Southwest. We're going to hopefully hire somebody in the Southeast. And we opened a charity and an office in the UK called NPT UK. So we're 20 years and six months old, but... 20 years and six months ago, I was sitting in a dark cubicle by myself with a, it was so dark that I went out to TJ Maxx and bought a lamp at lunch one day, um, trying to figure out what we were going to do and how we were going to grow. So you've been there from the very beginning. Since we launched, yes. Yeah, so it's been an amazing journey. How did you, were you part of l- launching this or were you recruited? I was, how did this happen? Well, so it's interesting. So I have, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, really, which you can't really tell <laughs> by this, but um, I'm not one of those people that needs to go out and kind of meet a million people and do things, but I'm very strategic and I like challenges a lot. So I, I heard through one of my friends that um, Pitcairn Trust Company was starting this entity called National Philanthropic Trust, and I and I called somebody at the trust company who I happened to know. I just cold called them and I said because I had worked at the Philadelphia Foundation and I understood donor advised funds, I'd really like to come and work for them. And they gave me a job description that was more suited to a private bank. And I and I said, you know, if you limit me to this job description, you won't take full advantage of all the things I know how to do. So I'd love to come work for you. And I, I can do this, but there's a lot of other things I can do. So um, they had never opened or started a charity. And I had been working in charities for a long time. So they hired me and I started working um, as the basically the chief development officer, the asset developer to bring money and to bring business. I mean, business development, which I actually okay, really we, like. Uh, so much here. Stop. Take two steps back. Yes. Um, I find it really important and fascinating that when you were first discussing the job for which you were not a 100 percent fit, you didn't hesitate. You said, I can do other things for you. Well, they you didn't say I'm not enough. You said, I can no, do more. No, that's right. Well, the thing is, they gave me a job description that was really for a private banking job. And this was to raise money for a charity. And so because I'd worked in the charitable sector and they were in private bank, they were taking a job that they thought was appropriate for it. But I knew this business well. So I just thought, well, if you really want to hire me, I, I, I know exactly what I have to do. And it's not really this, but I can do a lot of this. And they they acknowledged that they didn't really know how to run a charity. So, And I had worked. So it was a nice marriage of them acknowledging maybe there are other things here. And if you've done that, you know, we'd love to have you. And and I knew it was a pretty obscure product at the time, and I happened to know a lot about it. So it was a great moment. And it was, you know, 10 minutes from my, 12 minutes from my house. So it was fitting in that circle of making life work, too. Yeah. So you came to this, though, um, through 
philanthropy, but also through government work. I'd worked for um, both Joan and Arlen Specter. I was Joan Specter's uh, chief legislative aide, her first term in city council between 80 and 84. And then she really liked me and um, told me I was a good fundraiser. And I didn't even know that was a job, really. And then she, Arlen won, and I, in 81. And then when I stopped working for Joan, I took a, I did some consulting, and then Arlen hired me to be the finance director of his 86 reelection campaign to the United States Senate. And I was 31. I mean, I, it was wow. like throwing me into the wolves, really. <laughs> he did something very smart. He, he hired somebody who was very experienced at finance directing jobs and Senate races, and she, I shadowed her. She came up okay. for a month, and I worked side by side with her, and she basically gave me the infrastructure of what I needed to do the job. And um, I just heard that she's she moved to Hollywood, and she's an extra in movies now, which is really interesting. It's but, just your life has many chapters. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so this idea – so Arlen, Senator Specter was very much a taskmaster and, and um, loved fundraising. So I knew a lot about um, that from him, and he had really good vendors and people around the campaign. And I was just a sponge for the information. So, and it's – you know what? Working in politics is really fun. I'm glad to hear that because one of the things we've talked about recently is that we need more women in politics, both behind the campaigns and running for office. It's grueling, but it's fun. And um, you can't do it half-heartedly. You not just both feet in, both arms, feet, everything, <laughs> head, all your ears. I mean, there's no such thing as evenings or weekends. There's no – it just eats you. It eats your time. It eats your spirit. But if you're into public policy and into the good of people, you know, it's great. But it's just – it's really complicated. And it's – but it's – it was so rewarding. I thought I'd never like a job as much as I liked that. So when you jumped into that, got pulled into that, and you were giving people to shadow – um, were they consciously mentoring you? Yes. Or were they, or were you just watching closely? The woman that was paid to come up and train me, I was, I was, she was consciously mentoring me and I, and I listened to every word and she was seasoned and knew what she was talking about. I mean, how, you know, I, they, they sent me to school by sending the teacher right to my office every day. Which is I mean, incredible. What a good investment on their side, on their part. That was really smart. And I, I had worked on campaigns, but I worked on local campaigns. So the idea of working in a Senate race was really different, really different. And it was national. And um, Arlen was uh, – Arlen, shrewd and honest is a funny combination, but I would call him that. Um, he, for people who aren't familiar with Philadelphia and Pennsylvania politics, he was um, deeply respected, even when people didn't agree with him. And he became right. somebody that both parties came to really rely on to be a voice of reason. And you don't last in politics that long unless you're also pretty sharp. He's so smart and had amazing memory. And um, and the thing about him that was he had a lot of women working around him before Having women in the workforce was really fashionable. So he really promoted women. I never felt any kind of sexist elements of any part of the job. And he held me to a really high bar. And it was hard. I mean, I used to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes going, oh, my gosh, because I was young and I had nothing to compare it to, really. It was just a at a pace and an intensity that just I and you know campaigns are all about this deadline and that was I remember it was November 4th was the election day that's how important I mean here I am all these years later I remember it still because you work to that and that was do or die right most right. most jobs don't have that moment of do or die right but elections do so and campaign money the faster it comes in the faster it gets spent so that taught you early on that the numbers mattered. Right. And, you know, I always talk about some people talk about fundraising like it's public relations. And I said, no, it's not like public relations. It's like having a swing set in your backyard. You either have a swing set or you don't. You don't almost have a swing set. It's like <laughs> the money's either in the bank or it's not in the bank. Right. So it's not like do you have a good image or do people think well of you? Either you want to buy ads, you want to buy radio, do you want to buy print? You want to buy you internet? Money. You need the money. And it's and, and, and so what have you done for me lately? I mean, really. <laughs> And, and you were but, always yeah. counting your pennies, always. So along the way, though, you have to cultivate relationships in order to get that yes. money. And how is that different on the campaign trail where the clock is ticking at a really rapid pace versus working in um, private sector philanthropy? It made everything else seem easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And everything else. So when I got in, when I, you know, the, we know what got me to leave charitable, I mean, uh, the the f um, fundraising world and, and, and political campaigns was becoming a mother. I couldn't do it. I couldn't give my entire everything every day, every weekend. 
because all of a sudden I became a mother and I, I just couldn't do it. And so I thought, well, I, I need to have a different kind of job where I can go home. It's funny because I actually work a huge amount of time now. But so I started looking and somebody said, why don't you think about charitable fundraising? And I started doing informational interviews like what color is your parachute right. and asking people, what does it take? What, you know, I interviewed a lot of people, somebody, a really person that was one of very senior at Penn, actually. And a lot of people wouldn't hire me. I interviewed for a lot of jobs and they said, no, you're not qualified. Political fundraisers really don't relate to charitable fundraisers. You don't oh know God. anything. Yep. Somebody got me into tears, actually. Um, here, somebody here at Pat actually, <laughs> I interviewed and they, they, I, I thought, why would you bring me in and tell me that you just don't want me? I mean, what kind of interview is that? So, um, but I finally found somebody who would hire me and I, and I started doing it and I hated it. This is really interesting. I hated the job. I wanted to go back to politics. It was slow and laborious and I missed the fast <laughs> pace. And then one day a check for $650,000 oh came in. It was a bequest that was left in somebody's will. And one of the things about fundraising is even if you didn't cultivate the gift and close it, if it comes in, if the check gets delivered on your time, you can you get, yeah, you you get, get credit. credit. <laughs> so I looked at this. I looked at this check and I'd never seen anything like it before. And you know what? I went from whining and crying and weeping and fetching really to people saying, I want to go back to politics, to seeing that check and say, I want to figure out what makes a check like that happen. How do you trigger more checks? What happens in this world and how this and then um, and and I'm going to get I'm going to figure this out and get really good at it. And fast forward, it was at one of those pivotal moments. The next day, the same job that I had instead of looking boring and terrible looked really interesting. And I basically have never looked back. That's incredible about how all those things made became real for you and motivated you. Um, I loved all the zeros. <laughs> it's nice to see them I all did. line up. Um, we're going to talk about that and more after the break, um, where Eileen and I will continue our conversation about growing into leadership roles, fundraising, philanthropy, and how that unbelievable spirit played itself out in the years that have followed. I'm Laura Zarrow. You are listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. As always, we're taking calls. We love your emails. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today, we get the great pleasure of talking with Eileen Heisman, who's the President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. If you would like to join in the conversation, we'd really love to have you join us. Give us your questions. Give us your thoughts. You can reach us at one 844 wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. You can also write in to business radio at SiriusXM.com. So Eileen, welcome back. Thank you. So in the first half hour, we talked about a whole bunch of things, but um, I want to zero. I'm going to come back to a few of them because they were they were too rich and the conversation moved too fast. <laughs> so one of them is, is this issue of mentorship. So it sounds like when you were Early on in your career, um, you studied psychology and yes. sociology, right? And yes. you were now working on political fundraising on the Specters campaign. Um, and interestingly, they hired somebody to teach you how to do the work. Was that their idea, your idea? How did that happen? Because that's not a common thing. So I think the senator realized that even though I had worked for his wife, and, you know, she's one of my best longtime mentors. I just saw her for dinner um, last week. Um, I think he realized that Senate fundraising for a U.S. Senate race was had a skill set that was really different than doing local fundraising for city council. And he wanted me to hit the ground running. And so I think it was his idea. I think he, the woman's name was Elizabeth Montgomery. Um, he knew Elizabeth, and uh, he decided it was worth – and the campaign manager, who's somebody I still know. I'm still friends with, Gordon Woodrow. I think they decided that in order to get me the best skills I had, that a, a month of intensive kind of t- co-teaching, co-managing this was was what I needed. And um, and it was just great. And she was there every day, and I could ask her any question, and she helped me organize myself and stay focused. So I had basic political fundraising skills, but never for a U.S. Senate race. And because Arlen was um, Jewish, 
I'm Jewish too, actually. Um, he had a large constituency of Jewish donors that were outside of Pennsylvania. And it was very normal at the time, if you were in politics and Jewish, that you would tap into that through these networks mm -hmm. um, of vendors. And I needed to learn that. I just had no idea that happened. And I learned a lot about direct mail and how public policy blends into asking for money. It was There was not one boring moment. Um, sometimes they were too much, too money, but but I just learned, and and it was very transferable to the charitable sector. Though people argued with me for years that it wasn't, it absolutely was. How so? And, well, you know, direct mail. I mean, only about ten percent of the money is given on the internet now. The money that's given charitably, it's about two percent of the gross domestic product. Three hundred seventy-eight billion dollars last year. Oh my year. god. And so when um, – even though internet philanthropy for the millennials is what the only thing they do, you know, for baby boomers, it's not. And so direct mail is still a very common tool you use in charitable fundraising. And uh, so I I'll learned – I'll confess. Where, when, I've, when I wrote my checks in the last year, mm -hmm. a couple felt like urgent. I'm going to press the button on the phone while I'm on the train. Yes. Because, like, I have to do it this second. But really, the more calculated ones, I did at my desk with my checkbook on paper like I'm 150 years old. Right, which you're not 150. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's interesting because I think the letters that sit there, you percolate on them more. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, you think about them, you put them aside, you might read them. There's a thing called multi-channel fundraising, which is interesting, which just because you're asked in paper, you still might give online. So I think people thought when this started, when this Internet giving, that you had to ask online and give online. You ask on paper, you give on paper. So people cross fertilize. Sometimes they're being asked, you know, on the internet, and they're writing a check. And so the path isn't as straight. And so, it's so the been idea behind it is that because I think this is true whenever we're communicating complex things and trying to get people to internalize ways of change or new messaging, mm -hmm. is that the messaging comes in multiple avenues yes. and channels, and that doesn't predetermine um, where the action will take place. That's right, and you don't know which email or which letter. Or maybe a tweet, though. I'm not sure that any kind of tweets really might trigger a gift, but maybe um, are going to get a donor to act. And the question, and this is what I teach in my class, which is what gets a donor, a prospective donor, from doing nothing to doing something? And if you're a really good fundraiser and being a psychology major is perfect marriage, what is it that you can do to trigger somebody from being complacent and just reading something to say, yes, it's time for me to give now? So how have you seen that kind of act? Because giving can be a form of activism. It, oh, it absolutely is. In fact, one of the most fascinating things in the last year, which I just loved, and it was a term that was coined by Boston Globe, I think, was this rage philanthropy after the election. Oh, yeah. Isn't that great? And so this idea that people started giving to Planned Parenthood and then acknowledging Mike Pence as their trigger and then <laughs> yes. delivering the thank you notes to the Indiana State House, right? Yeah. I mean, and then the ACLU, you know, got a lot of money, rage philanthropy. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a way we're civically engaged, right, You're, where they're speaking with their, with their checkbooks, right? And so it's a very powerful tool we have in the United States. If you don't like what's going on, you can go and vote, but you can't vote that often every six months, right? Right. But you can give gifts to entities that – believe what you think the world should be, the way you're going to make the world a better place. And people can use charitable giving like that, and they do. And so this rage philanthropy was clearly cause and effect. People didn't like what happened in the election, and they decided they were going to they were going to talk with their checkbooks. And, you know, whether they did it online or they wrote a check, it really doesn't matter. What matters is they decided to do something. So you, this is the second time where you've talked about an experience within philanthropy that then sparks action. Yes. Um, in the first half hour, you were talking about, you know, you were, it sounds like you were kind of on the fence on, am I going to get super excited about philanthropy and fundraising outside of political fundraising? Yes. You know, because think about it. You know, one is so urgent. It's so <laughs> clearly immediately impactful in the world around us. The time clock is ticking. A whole lot of things that make it make it sort of terrifying and super exciting. And institutional philanthropy is, let's say, a slower game. Much slower. And you talked about the moment where a check arrived. I think it was a plan giving. Right. A request, right? right? Right. So somebody had done the hard work of Years cultivating before. that donor maybe decades before. Absolutely. And a $650,000 check arrives on your desk. And it did something. It changed something in you. I just realized that that private wealth unlike political fundraising and political activism, had a whole different change agent approach to the world 
and that the difference between charities being able to do a little bit or a lot was often the size of a gift. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you could trigger large gifts, and I I got into plan giving and major gifts, which are gifts of illiquid assets, trusts, and major gifts pretty quickly when I got into private philanthropy. And and they had a lot of zeros. And so I was fascinated by the whole process. I was fascinated by working with the donors. I was fascinated by what assets they would be willing to give or thought about giving. I love working with the advisors. You never work with a major gift and just work with the donor alone. There's often a banker or a lawyer or an accountant or somebody, a broker involved. And that uh, people really have passions. And so the idea that I could be an agent like a, an agent to somebody's passion to make the world a better place. Like, I just thought that was the greatest. And I didn't want to work at the front lines in a charity. I didn't want to be the person giving the soup out at a soup kitchen. In fact, I actually did that work a little bit and used to cry and get really weepy. And this is not me. But the, then I then I realized, you know, if I could move social capital from one's private wealth into the social sector in large chunks and do it with not ease, but but I, I understood how it worked. Like, what a great contribution I could make to the sector. Like, I knew that was my skill. I figured it out. I mean, I backed into it by accident in a way. And as soon as I figured out that I could do it, I thought, this is it. I really like this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure out how to do it really well. And I spent about six months. I identified every top-notch fundraiser in a community foundation around the country, some were CEOs, some were chief development officers. And for six months, I interviewed and or went to visit as many as I could. So you were already employed at this point. Yes. But this was part of your continued development. Right. So so I had Elizabeth Montgomery in the political thing. But in this thing, right. it took me six months to interview all these people. Notes. And some of these people I still know, actually. So a few of them have recently died. And I just became the student and sponge of what it meant to uh, raise this kind of money. And I listened and I wrote notes and I did my first plan. And I basically, you know, fast forward to when I went to NPT, um, I basically took that plan that was a local plan, because it was a community foundation was just in Philadelphia in the five counties. And I took that very identical plan and I kind of put it on steroids and made it a national plan. And that was the that was the backbone of what in my work at NPT was, was that same thinking. Was building that, out that plan. That research. And it, it was applied nationally. I just, but I, but I didn't have a national um, footprint initially. I was just doing it locally. Okay. So we know that you clearly get hungry for something. You want to learn about it. You find a way to learn about it. You're not afraid of taking on new challenges. So now we see you. But I have to tell you this. When they first told me they hired me for Ed NPT, they told me that my goal was to raise $100 million in three years. Oh, my God. That's a I lot know. of money. It's a lot of money. And it, how long ago was this? Because it was 96, more money then. Right. Like in today's dollars. I don't know. I don't do it with that, that present value that fast. But I got a little like misty, like, oh, my gosh, $100 million in three years. And then I do this, that which I do to myself all the time. I was just telling my daughter this the other day. When I get a big challenge, my first reaction for the – and it's when I say first, I mean 10 seconds, 15 seconds, not like days. The, the I say, initial I, gut reaction. I, can't, I, I won't be able to do it. It's too complicated. I can't do it. I won't be able to do it. I can't do it. Like even when I go to make my bed, I think, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be really wacky I do sometimes. that before every run right, I have right, to confess. Exactly, right. I mean, I do it before my Zumba classes. I'm not going to make it through. I'm going to leave halfway through. And I always <laughs> make it through. But I went, I went, I went, oh, my gosh, $100 million. I can't do that. And then about – 20 seconds later, I thought, maybe I can do that. I did that plan. I figured out how to do this. I think I can do that. And so within a very short period of time, I go from the self-doubt of there's no way I can do that to I think I can do that to actually saying to them, I might be able to do that. I could probably do that, but I'm going to need some tools. Oh, my God. So you jump through. You move from imposter syndrome that so many of us tend to to gravitate towards or you know reflect all the time to I can do this I just need to learn how but you do it in like less than three minutes so you know what if they had told me that I had to become the accountant or the CFO I would have been in the imposter syndrome the whole time because I can't I don't even balance my checkbook I don't even understand how that works but if you tell me you have to take do something nationally that you did successfully locally I just was like you know I just thought, well, I, I think I can do that. I, I, and I, and I did do it actually. Well, I didn't do it exactly, but almost, I almost so did do what, it exactly. Actually, what helped you learn that pattern of? Because it sounds like here are the steps: um, grasp the challenge, acknowledge your doubt, connect it to something that you've done that's similar that you can build upon, and find the faith to a the faith that you can do that again. And then the strategy of where you're going to learn to fill the gaps. You have one missing piece. What's the missing piece? That my father, who's been dead since I'm 31, 
used to say to me, Eileen, you can be president of the United States. So it's that faith in yourself. Is it you hearing his voice or you've internalized it? So you need to know, every day I walk into my office and I have a grainy photo of him that was taken by my college graduation party. He died when I was 31. Every day I walk in and it's the first thing I see on my computer screen is his face looking at me. So that message every day is you can do this. I'm doing it. And I never had, when he died when I was working for Arlen and... um, when I used to go into CCU or ICU, they used to say, are you, you're his daughter? Eileen, he only had one daughter. And I said, yes. And they said, you work for Senator Specter. He's so proud of you. And I used to just say, oh, dad. And you know what? I think to myself, if he'd see, saw this, you know, this, I mean, I, I was so proud. I, you know, working for Arlen and Joan and the Specter family was just amazing experience. I, I mean, they were both mentors. Uh, I still know the family. I still know Joan well. You know, put it in the context of NPT, of raising money, you know, nationally and globally. You know, we're the largest private labeler of donor-advised funds in the country. Um, we break ground in a lot of different things that um, weren't done before. So, and I have great colleagues around me. I just love the people that work with me. They they're, have the same kind of fire in their belly that I do. But, you know, I'd like to say, Dad, you know, I'm not president of the United States, and I and I didn't get to see a female president, and I, maybe I'm not. But you know what? I got to be president of something else. Oh, clearly. That's having a huge ripple effect. The impact of what you do is enormous. It's, it's, and you know what? I always wanted to make the world a better place. And before I thought politics was the way, and then I realized private philanthropy was another way. No, there's way. enormous power in how private wealth gets leveraged. Unbelievable. Um, and so one of the things that you were also talking about that I wanted to ask about, because um, I work with lots of, I've done fundraising, mm-hmm. I work with lots of fundraisers, mm-hmm. and very often the language is about cultivating a relationship, but you talked about triggering a donor. Sure. And, you know, uh, and in an era where we talk about trigger in all kinds of negative sure, ways. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and it's this idea of what what draws the donor into taking action. You know, what can you do? And, you know, in the donor advice fund world where I live and work right now, it's very different than if you're raising money for a hospital university or some kind of, you know, social service program. But, you know, you have to connect your mission of the organization to the real core of what your donor thinks is important. And it's and the, what gives the donor to make what gets the donor to make their first gift is usually an emotional tug. So it's often a story. So, I mean, that's old storytelling, which is, you know, true of advertising, you know, is really, really important. And um and I think, you know, a lot of people think statistics get people to raise money. But but if you look at the research data, statistics don't get anybody to give anything usually. It might get you to give your second or third or fourth gift. Right. Or to decide specifically where the gift is going and how it's going to be structured. Right. But it's not going to usually get you to get your first gift. So fundraisers really have to know how to tap into donors' emotions. By the way, the person I'm talking to with all this insight, passion, good advice, um, is Eileen Heisman. And she is the CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. This is, of course, Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm Laura Zarrow, your host for the show. Um, if you want to give us a call, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So we get the great gift of having you here today to help us learn from your life lessons. Um, but you work with a big team of people. How do you I approach do. helping them learn, and how do you mentor in turn? So I try to... Um model it after my favorite one of my favorite bosses was the guy who was the CEO of Abington Hospital when I worked there I worked in hospital philanthropy briefly and his name was Felix Pillen he was a short guy Italian his mother was right off the boat and he started out as a nurse and he decided he was going to become an administrator and ended up running hospital systems and he was the most amazing CEO and I interviewed him when I was younger and I said Felix what how, what's your like what's your management theory and he and he said a few things one of the things he said was um I try to hire the smartest people I can and give them the tools they need to do their job and let them do their job and not get in their way. He said, the other thing I do is I let them make their own mistakes. He goes, if they're not life-threatening, if it's about, you know, code red. (laughs) But he said, and then they learn from their mistakes and they get to be better managers and that's good for the hospital. I was amazed at those two things. I mean, that wasn't what I thought he was going to say. Um, and then he he said uh, something else, which is he said that he does talk goes and talks to everybody. He talks to the people that do the laundry in the hospital. He talks to the people that park cars. You know, he talks to nurses on the floor, and he learns a lot about what's going on. 
And so I, I wouldn't say I replicate that exactly, but I spend, I do a lot of that. I try to hire smart people. I got, try to give them the tools they need to do their job. I try to teach them a lot. Push, I have a philosophy of pushing knowledge down and out through the organization so it doesn't sit and reside with me. And then the other thing is I try to get them to mentor people. So I, I, you know, I have a few people that I spend and invest a lot of time with, but I want them to also hire talented young people. And How do you pick them. who you mentor? So, you know, one of the, my great privileges, and I, this was also a cold call, kind of like my call to the people that started NPT, is I, um, I cold called the dean of SP2 about 12 years ago, Rich Gallus, who I hope is listening. He's probably not. But, and, I, and he didn't answer my fir- call the first few times. I kept calling, and, and, and I fi- he finally went out to lunch with me. And I said to him, I wanted to teach a course in SP2, and I wanted to teach what I knew about philanthropy and fundraising to people in this school because they're going to all be working in the social sector. And what more important thing can you do for any nonprofit than to bring in assets to help them meet their mission? I mean, there's right. almost nothing. I mean, you need quality programming, but you need But you resources. can't execute the quality That's, programming if you don't have resources. That's exactly right. And he said he, – he sat there for about 20 seconds, not even, maybe six seconds, and he said, okay – he goes, that's a good idea. And then he said, a lot of our graduates are going into development jobs. That's a really good idea. I'd love to do that. But before you go in the classroom, you have to really go through a pretty rigorous process. So it was a year and a half before I had my syllabus done with all my assignments. I had 14 weeks. I had every every class had to be mapped no, out. No, curriculum development's its own project. It went through it uh, the, went through the um, committee at mm-hmm. whoever does that stuff. I, kn- I knew nothing about university <laughs> politics. And I got in the classroom. And my first class had 11 students. And some of those students I still keep in contact with. So I just finished my 11th year of teaching. I'm now part of the core curriculum at the, national, the NPL program, which is nonprofit leadership. So my class went from 11 to like 18 to 20 to 25. Now it's at 40, you That's know, which amazing. is a lot. Um, so of the people you mentor, what's uh, the breakdown between women and men? Um, it's probably about two-thirds women, one-third men. I mean, my my class tends to be more women than men, so it probably reflects the, the that. And people kind of show up in a way that they're ready for it. You know, I, I have, what does that look like to you? I have office hours before class. And, and this was the last couple of years, my class got really big. Fewer and fewer people use them. So my class was small. Every every I had three people before every class. I always had a full, always all three appointments were filled up. And so as the class got bigger, I don't know, it was intimidating or they didn't realize. I said, I'll talk to you about your jobs. As long as, long as you don't like whine and cry or whatever. <laughs> and and on your talk about your love life, so I don't really want to do that. But anything about your, your careers, your jobs, about anything in class, I'm happy to talk about it. And so people just kind of show up as, as wanting to talk. And, uh, and I never know who it's going to be at the beginning of class. But those people I usually stay in contact with. So there's weeks in which I hear from people from half the years or two-thirds of the years. I have students who live all over the world. Because of social media, because of Facebook and LinkedIn and stay connected. Twitter, I'm connected to a lot of them. And uh, one of them, I had an gr- amazing student who, um, who was actually in the foster care system who didn't have parents to guide her. And she was interviewing for a job recently. And through LinkedIn, I kind of coached her through the interview process of what I thought she should talk about. Another person, I actually coached her. She came up to the office and I said, this is what you should wear. These are the questions you should think about asking. You should, this is the assignment. You should, one of my assignments is very relevant, very practical. You should take it in. These are the kinds of things you should focus on. She really wanted this job and she got it. And, and that's A, great. But also it's showing that in mentoring, because you know people are seeking mentorship all the time i i often talk about it as like people are looking for true love or a parent and mentorship is really where do you find people who are going to teach you things every time you've talked about mentorship in our conversation it's related to um a a teaching relationship a guidance that's around doing something specific not um let's go to lunch and talk about dreams right Uh, yeah i don't do any of that and i'm not very good at touchy-feely things anyway and so (laughs) when you talk about building teams probably one of my weaknesses and i think women get misidentified as they're going to be mushy i'm pretty businesslike you know here are the goals this is what we want to do let's do it you know i don't have a lot of time for the um I don't have a lot of time to do the do the mushy stuff, right? And so, but when it's impactful and it's helping other people be impactful, it sounds like that's what a you you make plenty of time for. Absolutely, quite generously. Right. I'm very concrete, and 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 I you know ask me questions about the, what you want to do, you know, and I I try to guide through people through career questions. 
you know, struggling with changing jobs um, if they want a promotion. Um, what, what I've had students say, I want to ask my boss for a raise. What should I do? What kind of information? And I kind of coach them through the data they should take in. So I want to ask you a question about philanthropy as a career. Yes. So there, uh, I'll tell you like the, the short list of the things most people like presume to be true with philanthropy and yes. then talk to us about it. So one is that um, it draws more women than men given how mission-driven it is. Is this true? It's true. Uh, uh, so if you think of philanthropy as working in foundations, that's how most people think of it. It's a In the smaller foundations, you probably see more women. In the larger foundations, you probably see a mix. Um, how much of that is about a gender proclivity and how much of that is that um, women are willing to work for the lower salaries right. that the not-for-profit world is usually offering? Uh, it's probably, you know what, I think of the business world and I look at the world that I work in and I think women have a little bit better access to leadership there. I still think on the very high-level jobs that's not true. You know what? I don't know if I wasn't there when we launched that I could get the job now, right? Right. I mean, it's a $4 billion job. I have a degree in social work. I don't have a business degree. I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a math genius or anything, but I, I, I know this business really well, and I and I grew it. But if, if somebody was looking for this job now, I mean, I have no idea. They might get some elected. I have no idea what, what who my successor might be, but... But but I think that I think that women have access points in philanthropy that they might not have in the business world. Though you know, I, when I look around, and I've been in Wharton a lot actually in the last few years because I teach in the board uh, leadership program. And there's tons of women in the business world. Mm-hmm. So you know, increasingly so, and we're trying to help there be more of them. Right, and you know what? It, I do think there's a relatively high amount of gender issues in the world. I do. And I think I think anybody who says no to that has their head in the sand. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I had a board member once make a comment to me, and I can't remember what it was about. Um, and it was maybe 10 years ago. And I said to him, this is a tough thing to say, but I was pretty mad, actually. I said to him, you know what, if I was six feet tall with gray hair, and my same set of achievements, and I was a man, do you think you might you would have said that to me? Good for you. What did he say? He said, are you calling me sexist? And I said, I, I never said that because I didn't. I just wanted to reframe it. Right. If I was one of your golf friends, I don't play golf, but if I was one of your golf buddies and literally had gray hair and it was six feet tall and, and had the exact same set of accomplishments, I couldn't imagine that he would have said it to me. And, you know, I don't really like those moments, but I can't let them go by. And I try They're not, real. And I try not to be super aggressive or angry. And you know what? I'm still friends with him. I'm still friends with him. And I and he's you know, he actually his daughter was graduating from college and he wanted me to help her figure out how to navigate some career so things. So it you know sounds to me like along the way, you not only um, built this phenomenal career where you make this enormous impact, but by being true to yourself in these kinds of conversations, you've been able to Keep your own self-respect while earning the respect of others. I try. Respect's really important to me. I mean, I try to conduct myself with a lot of dignity and integrity. And and I try, you know, I try to be really transparent about what I'm doing. I try not to, like, pull punches. I mean, it's not every moment's a perfect moment, but I, I try to be really candid. And, you know, when I feel like there's a gender issue, I say it. And you know what? I can't tell you how grateful we are. For everything that you've said today, um, it's been full of wisdom and good humor and real insight. So thank you. If people want to learn more about the trust, where can they find information? Um, our and our website is nptrust.org, um, or you can just Google National Philanthropic Trust.org. And I'm related to the Heisman Football Trophy, so I'm spelled <laughs> the same way. So I, if you Google Eileen Heisman, you'll find um, your way to NPT as so well. So whether you're looking to get involved with the trust, you want to go work for this amazing woman. We have, this a, lot amazing job, organization. We have a lot of job openings right now. So if you're interested, absolutely look Check at the it website. Out. Um, so Eileen, thank you so much for you're joining welcome, us Laura. here on Women at Work. It's really been a pleasure. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, for Michelle, who's sitting in for her for the second half of our show, our sound engineer, Tatiana. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.